0: but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God.
1: Before we go to the gospel reading, let's listen to Paul's words to the Corinthians in chapter 1 of his first epistle, beginning at verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We rise now to hear the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. who were before you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is the Old Testament lesson that is appointed for this day, the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. It's from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear these words of our Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Stand up and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Well, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is our text. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Do you know how the state of Missouri received its nickname, the Show-Me State? It is said to have gained the nickname from a speech that was spoken by Missouri Congressman Willard Duncan Vandiver in 1899. Speaking in Philadelphia, Vandiver said, Frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You have to show me. Like the congressman from Missouri, God doesn't want us to try to impress him or satisfy him with frothy eloquence. God wants us to show him, to epiphanize him, to manifest him through our words and our deeds. That's how people will know we are his followers. That's how we will show him our dedication and love. God wants us to be the light to the nations so that they might be drawn to our Heavenly Father and glorify him who resides in heaven. The opening words of our text describe a courtroom scene. We hear, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. God puts the people of Israel, the people of Israel from the 8th century B.C., on trial. He's trying to determine if their lives actually reflect the fact that they're his chosen people. And he actually finds them guilty, not surprisingly, but he finds them guilty of worshiping false gods, of being unjust towards their neighbors, of rebelling against against God's messengers, and really, yes, going through the motions of worship, but their heart not really in it. In fact, the Lord concludes as he surveys the people of Israel in that day, he concludes that they've grown weary, maybe even a little bored and indifferent to him. And he asks, almost with exasperation, in verse 3, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. If God were to put the church on trial today, would he find the same problems? Would he find people in the church worshiping false gods? Would he find people in the church... uh, being unjust to people around them? Would he find people rebelling against the messengers of, of God, those who are speaking his word? Would he find a lot of people just kind of going through the motions of worshiping the Lord, but really without any heart and soul in it? Would he find that people are kind of like weary and bored with God? Maybe even a little indifferent to his word what would his verdict be of you and me Israel's indifference and weariness and disobedience towards God is really quite bewildering we can understand why God is just like bewildered by that fact considering that they have been the benefactors of his mercy and providential care for literally centuries and as proof the Lord presents three past events as evidence. He reminds them of the miraculous rescue of the Israelites from Egypt. He says in verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. He reminds them of how he brought the plagues upon the Egyptians. He reminds them of the Passover and how when they painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost that the angel of death passed over them. He reminds them of how he parted the Red Sea so that they might escape the Egyptians. He reminds them of how he provided them with with leadership in, in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He reminds them that he kept his promises to them, that he had promised that he would ultimately deliver them from Egyptian slavery. It may have taken 430 years, but he fulfilled his promise to Jacob. And then he also reminds them of a time in their life where Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to bring a curse upon the people of Israel. Moab, or or the Balak and the Moabites, were afraid of the people of Israel. They'd seen that the people of Israel, while in Israel, had grown to be like a a million people. They were numerous. And Balak was afraid. And he had heard about all these miracles that the Israelites, God, had done and and he and his people were terrified, and so he employed the services of a a diviner named Balaam. And Balak asked Balaam to curse the people of Israel on four separate occasions. And each time, God intervened in such a way that that Balaam was not allowed to grant that curse. And in fact, during the fourth time when Balaam was going to curse the people of Israel, he actually blessed Balaam the people of Israel, because God said to Balaam, this is what you will say. And this was the blessing he foretells of the Messiah. He says, I see him. This is Balaam's words. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. God did not withhold his protection of the people of Israel at that time. He protected them from the curse of Baal. He reminds them also of the trip that they had from Shittim to Gilgal. He says in verse 5, Remember your, your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, you may remember that the people of Israel wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. And now they're just about ready to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land. And at that time, God instructed through through Moses that the that the priests are now to take the Ark of the Covenant and are to lead the people. And as they touch the waters of the Jordan River, the waters are stopped. The ground becomes dry. And they march across that Jordan River. Not unlike what had happened years earlier when God caused the Red Sea to stopped flowing as well, and they marched across through the Red Sea to safety. God reminds the people of Israel of these three very significant events because he's reminding them that he has been faithful to them. He has been merciful to them. He's been kind to them. He's provided for all of their needs through that journey. He's protected them from all of their enemies. He's been faithful to his promises, and yes, even the promise of the Messiah still remains for them. And yet people of Israel are bored, indifferent, and even turning their hearts to other gods. What events might the Lord present to us to remind us of his mercy, of his faithfulness to you and to me? Well, of course, the big ones that he might point us to are Jesus' death on the cross, where our sins are forgiven. He might point us to that day of resurrection where the, the tomb was empty and, and we see that Christ is risen and He's promised that you and I will rise to eternal life. He might point us to our baptism where it was there that He claimed us by name and, and assured us that we're children in His family, that we have the promise of everlasting life. He might take us to the Lord's Supper and say, Remember, every time you come to the Lord's Supper, what do I give you? I give you my, the very body and blood of my Son, Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He might remind us of the providential care of how he provides for all of our needs. As I was preparing for this message, I I couldn't help but just think how I take for granted the rotation of the earth around the sun. That's God's providential care. I don't even think about that. I thought about how he provides air for us to breathe. I didn't even think about that normally. I thought about all the food that that he places before me. I often don't think about that. But all of these things are just little ways, and maybe significant ways, in which the Lord provides for us, where he shows us his mercy and love and how he's faithful to us day in and day out. And what is often the response of his people? Are we not often like the people of Israel? You would think that the people of Israel, when confronted by God with these three episodes, these three acts of mercy on his part, that they would repent of their sin and that they would be sorrowful and that they would actually you know, come to the Lord with maybe a little bit of humility. But no, not these obstinate people. What is Israel's response to the Lord? Well, they fire back, and I'll just quote from the text. They, they say to God... With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? A little sarcasm in their voices. It's never good to be sarcastic with God. But they try to turn the tables. They actually accuse God. They basically say, well, who can please you, God? I mean, there's nothing that we can do that will ever satisfy you. We could offer you our very best. We could offer up our own son. And you'd still be displeased. You'd still want more. There's no remorse in their words. There's no humility. There's no admission of fault on their part. If blame lies anywhere, it's with the Lord. That's what they counter with. They basically say, we've observed the religious rituals. We've offered up the sacrifices. What more do you want or expect from us, God? Are these actions not enough to please you? Again, how do we respond to God's gracious acts in our life? Do we find ourselves maybe thinking a little bit like the people of Israel? God, what more do you want from me? Haven't I given you enough? Why do you always ask for just a little bit more? Well, verse 8 is really one of the key verses in this whole book. Because in it, God lays, responds to those accusations. What more do you want from me? And he says, He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Tom Landry, some of you may remember him, great coach for the Dallas Cowboys. He coached him for about 29 years. I had to throw a football illustration in today, right? He said, there's a lot of confusion today about what it means to be a Christian the testimonials of athletes who say, God, help me score a touchdown, mislead people, and belittle God. Landry says, God does not care who wins a football game. He doesn't play favorites. That may not be so good for the 49ers or the Chiefs today, right? He says, he doesn't play favorites. Anyone with a personal faith in Jesus Christ tries to put the teachings of God into practice in his daily life. He takes on some of the integrity and the patience and the truthfulness and so on. Of Christ verse 8 really is an excellent summary of discipleship what does God require of us not for our salvation because there's nothing required of our salvation because Christ paid for it all with his death on the cross but what does God require and ask of us as his people to show that he is a merciful and loving God but in these words. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. Act justly. That means be equitable in your judgment of other people. It's like Luther's explanation of the Eighth Commandment where he says, put the best construction on the behavior of others. Don't think the worst of the others. Think of the best of the others. Don't try to question the motives of others, but to try to explain the motives of others in the best way that you can. And he says act justly, it means be fair to all. Treat people with the same standards, not one standard for a friend and another standard for a stranger, not as one standard for the rich person and a one standard for the poor, but no, treat everyone fairly in the way that you deal with them. And he says, love mercy. Love mercy. Because you see, the Lord himself delights in mercy. In another verse, or chapter and verse in Micah, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Yes, even with these obstinate people who are disobeying the Lord, the Lord desires to show mercy. And he does show mercy for he sends a Savior to forgive them of their sins as they repent in, and they repent of their sin. He does desire to show mercy to all the people of this world. That's his greatest delight. And we even see this mercy in the book of Micah where he refers to these disobedient and wayward people in, other, in, our, own, in our own chapter. He refers to them as, O oh, my people. Oh, my people. It's a tender address. It's full of His love and care for these people. He acknowledges that they're His creation. We see His mercy evident in other parts of the book of Micah where He even tells them that the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem because He wants them to believe in the One who is the source of mercy. In Naranth, the people of Israel ask, Shall I offer my firstborn as Uh, For my transgression? And and the Lord would, of course, say, Well, no, because I'm going to offer my son as an offering for your sin. And he did, didn't he? He gave up his only begotten son, not for Jesus's sin, but for their sin, and for your sin, and for my sin. Talk about mercy. And that's why Paul can say to the Ephesian Christians, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. We who live in the mercy of God share the mercy of God in our lives with other people. If you've had a chance to look at Facebook today, you'll noted that on the page of St. James, we posted a, a quote from St. Augustine. And St. Augustine asks, What does love look like? You might say, What does mercy, chesed is the Hebrew, what does it look like? Well, it has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has the eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That's what love looks like. Yes, love, the love of God in our lives, looks like kindness and mercy and compassion towards all those who are in need, not judgment. It's a time for us to encourage one another, to give to one another, to give generously to one another, to lead and to do it cheerfully, is what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 12. It's to not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased, writes the writer to the Hebrews. And so even as God our Father rejoices in mercy and delights in doing it, we too delight in kindness and mercy. We abundantly forgive those who sin against us. And as we do so, we walk humbly with the Lord. When I was first looking at this text, I jumped past the word walk. And I just kind of was focusing on humbly. But then I went back, because the commentator kind of made me go back and I realize we need to walk with the Lord. That means spending time with the Lord each and every day. Walking and following along Him. Following His lead. It means immersing ourselves in His Word. Spending time in worship and prayer. And as we do so, He leads us. And as we walk with Him, we do so humbly, recognizing that we, are, we have no right to be arrogant We have no right to think that we're better than someone else. But instead, we come before the Lord humbly, even as the psalmist says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so we come before the Lord humbly, asking Him to forgive us for Jesus' sake. And indeed, He does forgive us for Jesus' sake. And as we live in that humbleness, we approach other people with that same sort of humility, and we say to such people, let us go together to the mercy seat of our God to receive His forgiveness through Christ. So that's what it means to be a follower of God. That's what the Lord looks for when He looks into our lives. What does the Lord require of you and me? It's really quite simple. To act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Amen. And now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.